Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries. Welcome to Jewish Awareness Podcast, a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. On Friday nights at our headquarters, we host a Bible study. Generally, we do verse-by-verse studies of different books of the Bible. Through the years, these studies have looked at the books of Isaiah, Ezekiel, John, and Hebrews. At times, we will have studies devoted to Jewish cultural events or issues relating to Israel and prophecy. These studies can be viewed live through the JAM Facebook live stream platform on Fridays. If you have questions or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org. Email us at office at jewishawareness.org or call us at 919-275-4477. This information will be repeated at the end of the podcast. Enjoy the Bible study. I am just privileged and honored to be able to have the first Bible study of the year. So I'm not happy that it, you know, it's because of um, what Mark has to suffer for me to be able to be here as his substitute, but um, I'm thankful that you're here, and I'm thankful for God's Word that we can look into it together, and I'm, I'm really excited about where we are. We are starting John chapter 4. John chapter 4 is just an amazing, amazing chapter. It's one of my favorites in the Gospels, um, and you'll, you'll soon learn why as we go through this. But we finished, we finished all the way up to John chapter 3. We finished going through John chapter 3 the last time we were here together. So just to um, recap a little bit on what we saw uh, so far in John chapter 2 and chapter 3, we've seen Jesus' first miracle at the wedding in Cana. You remember that? Okay, where he turned the water into, Bob, non-alcoholic wine? <laughs> <laughs> I was asking a question. I don't know. I'm not sure if Mark is, is, is watching this right now or, 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 or not, but I had a discussion with, with Bob asking him if, if Mark was probably taking NyQuil or not. <laughs> so Bob says, I hope he is. But um, anyway, that, you know, ongoing joke because I mentioned taking NyQuil. Um, okay, so we saw Jesus' first miracle at Cana. We saw the first Passover of Jesus' earthly ministry. We've also examined Jesus' discussion with Nicodemus about being born again. We looked through the famous passage, John 3.16, and we're going to revisit that again here shortly in a little bit. And we have seen that man is condemned already due to unbelief. Man is condemned already because of his unbelief, because he hath not believed in the only begotten Son of God. And we've also seen John the Baptist, his statement about how we are to decrease and he, Jesus, must increase. So we're going to see some things here that I believe will be encouraging to us, some things that will be challenging, some things that might even be convicting. Um, But we're going to look at this chapter. It's a really kind of amazing, unique passage of Scripture that is not... To my knowledge, I should have looked this up to make sure, but I don't think this is duplicated in any of the other Gospels. There's no other parallel accounts of what we're about to read in John chapter 4 with this woman at the well. 
But let's look in verse 1, in John chapter 4, we see the setting here, okay? Where this is occurring, why this is occurring, and the way that it is, just kind of setting the stage. Can you hear me okay, brother? In the front there? Just making sure. Can you hear me okay? Halfway okay. Okay. I got to remember to talk a little bit louder because he doesn't have his hearing aids. Okay. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, parentheses, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples, he left Judea and departed again into Galilee. So this is the first inkling we get of what the setting of this chapter is going to be. Jesus is leaving Judea. He's leaving Judah. Okay, and you have this map in the lower left of your, of your page there. Where both of those arrows are originating from, you see that those are arrows there? Okay, they're kind of small. But where both of those arrows originate from is Jerusalem. Okay? That is biblical Judea. He is leaving Judea, or Judah, as it's known in Hebrew. He's leaving the territory of Judah, and he's going up to Galilee. And you guys see that lake, okay, the Sea of Galilee up there at the upper right corner of that map? That's the Sea of Galilee. That's the region of Galilee. So Jesus is going from the area of Judea, not necessarily Jerusalem, but probably more over towards where the river is, the River Jordan, and he's going up into Galilee. And then in verse number 5, I'm going to purposely skip over verse 4 for a second. Well, let's go ahead and we can do verse, we can do verse 4. It says, And he must needs go through Samaria. Samaria is what we're going to look at for quite a bit, or at least the first page. I'm not sure how long this lesson is going to go. I'm planning on doing the John chapter 4 completely, totally, finishing John chapter 4. Um, but I have no idea how long it's going to take. So it may, be very, it may be a very short lesson. It may be... Uh, full size? I don't know. I doubt that it'll be longer. But Jesus says he must needs go through. He has to go through. He needs to go through Samaria. We're going to learn about Samaria tonight. In verse number five, then cometh he to a city of Samaria. So we're getting very specific now as to the setting of this passage, what's going on, where it's happening. He cometh to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. This is the city of Samaria that he is at, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Now, there's some really neat background to this city of Samaria, this parcel of land where Jesus is visiting. Okay, so he's coming from Judea. He's coming from Judah. Remember where John was baptizing by the River Jordan? Okay, and so he goes up through this area that was commonly, we'll talk about it in a minute, was commonly avoided by Jewish people. It had a stigma that no Jewish person would be caught dead going through this area. Not because they didn't like the landscape, not because they didn't like the place itself, but because they didn't like the people that resided there. They avoided that place because they didn't want to go near the people that they so hated. So when we see that Jesus says he must needs go through Samaria, it's a startling thing. Let's look back. Keep your finger there in John chapter 4. Let's turn all the way back to Genesis chapter 33. Okay, Genesis chapter 33. We just read how that 
Jesus comes to Sychar near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Okay, that was read in John chapter 4. We look at Genesis 33, look at verse 18. It says, And Jacob came to Shalem, a city of Shechem. Shechem. Is Shechem familiar? Shechem should be familiar. It appears over and over and over, especially in the book of Genesis. Shechem is basically where Jesus is in this passage in John chapter 4, which is in the land of Canaan when he came from, from Padanaram and pitched his tent before the city. And he bought a parcel of a field. Now, who is this that bought this parcel of a field? Jacob. Jacob bought the parcel of a field where he had spread his tent at the hand of the children of Hamor, Shechem's father, for a hundred pieces of money. And he erected there an altar and called it Elohe Israel. Basically, I'm sorry, El Elohe Israel. God is the God of Israel, is basically what that means. So Jacob buys this parcel of land in Shechem. Now, if you look on that map, where those arrows are, are, are going, you see the red arrow? The red arrow shows the route that Jesus took. This red arrow, this route that Jesus took, was a route that commonly went from Galilee and the, the area of Samaria all the way down to Judea and to Jerusalem. This route is known as the Way of the Patriarchs. It's known as the way of the patriarchs because the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, they all went up and down this route all the time. You look through the book of Genesis, you see this over and over and over and over again. You see, the Samaritans and that stigma, that hatred that we see in the New Testament that they have, that the Jewish people have toward them, didn't exist in the book of Genesis. Okay, Shechem was a relatively uncolonized area, city of Canaan, and Jacob buys this parcel of land from Hamor, Shechem's father. And so, let's go over to Joshua chapter 24 and see what happens to this parcel of land that Jacob bought. Over a couple of pages, well, more than a couple. Joshua chapter 24. Let's look at verse number, I think just the one verse, verse number 32. Joshua 24, verse number 32. And the bones of Joseph, which the children of Israel brought up out of Egypt, buried they in Shechem, in a parcel of ground which Jacob bought of the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, for a hundred pieces of silver. And it became the inheritance of the children of Joseph. Okay, so back to John chapter 4, verse number 5. Then he cometh to a city of Samaria, which is called Sychar. Okay, that's kind of the New Testament name of the area of Shechem. Does anybody know? Wild question here. Does anybody know what the modern name of Shechem or Sychar is today? It's a hotly contested piece of real estate. Okay, it's called Nobilis. Nobilis, it's, it, people often refer to it as Nobilis Shechem. Shechem being the Old Testament name, 
Sychar being the New Testament name, Nobilis being the current name, and it is a quote-unquote Palestinian city. This is in the West Bank. If you look at this map here, you see that dark area where Jerusalem is? Okay, if you ever look at a map and you see the quote-unquote West Bank, it looks kind of like a peanut, you know, or a kidney. It's kind of this weird shape. The upper portion is the area of biblical Samaria. The lower portion is the area of biblical Judah or Judea. And so, oh man, when we went to Israel this last time, the very first time that I ever went, well, we went to a couple of different places in, in, in that area, the, the Jordan River baptism site being in, technically in the West Bank, biblical Judah, okay? But this area is under Palestinian, quote-unquote Palestinian, control. And it just breaks my heart when we see these things. When we, we went to Shiloh, and Shiloh is kind of smack in the middle of that red arrow, okay? Halfway between Jerusalem and Shechem is, is Shiloh. And so there's just such an amazing biblical history. When you look through Genesis, you'll see Shechem, 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 Shechem. And this is, a, this is an Arab city now. It is a Palestinian city. It is uh, a place that probably isn't very safe for Jewish people to, to be. Um, and it's just sad. But knowing that, you know, the Lord's going to, they're going to get that land back. And uh, boy, what a day that will be, huh? You and I are going to be able to uh, be there during the millennial reign, the millennial kingdom. And I don't know if there's certain people out there that have a better grasp on what that's going to be like. Um, I know that we, we've studied a lot of that in Mark's studies through Ezekiel and, and elsewhere. Um, but when you look at the situation of things today, it just kind of is a stark contrast to what we know it will be like during the reign of Christ. So anyway, that was a little bit of a rabbit trail there, but this is where they are. They're in what is nowadays called Nobilis. In Genesis, it's called Shechem. Here, it's called Sychar. Okay, so that's the setting. This is where they are. Look at verse number four, where Jesus says he must needs go, or it says that Jesus must needs go through Samaria. This is an area where people are, they're lower than the low. They're lower than just a plain old run-of-the-mill Gentile, a goyim, a goy. They are looked down upon so greatly by the Jewish people that um, it's an insult to call somebody a Samaritan. What did the Jewish people, just a couple chapters from now, John chapter 8, Jewish people that Jesus is talking to about he, how he is uh, the Savior. And he says that, um, actually, let's, let's turn there real quick. A couple pages over, John chapter 8. Let's see here, verse number 32. Um, let's see here. Okay. Let's look at verse number 44 of John chapter 8. Jesus says, Ye are of your father the devil, and the lusts of your father ye will do. He was a murderer from the beginning, and abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh, it, speaketh of his own, 
for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, ye believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? These Jewish people, they were on board with Jesus up until uh, verse number 30, verse number 29, verse 30. They were trusting in what he was saying up to that point. But as soon as he says, you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free, you shall be free indeed, they kind of get a bit confused. And they say, Jesus, we, how can you say we need to be made free? We're Abraham's seed. We've never been in bondage to anybody. We don't need to be made free. And Jesus says, Verily I say unto you, whosoever is the servant of sin is basically in bondage to that sin, is in slavery to that sin. The Jewish people were arguing with Jesus, saying, we've never been in slavery. We don't need to be made set free. And Jesus said, your sin is what's enslaving you. And the conversation turns. And they become upset, and they start saying things uh, against Jesus and who he is. And so Jesus says, because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Which of you convinceth me of sin? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because ye are not of God. Side note, Jesus just claimed to be God right there. He says, you don't hear my words because you're not of God. He that is of God hears God's words. Uh, and then verse number 48. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, Say we not well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil. So they used the term Samaritan as an insult to Jesus. It was just the lowest of the low. And so when we see the different things that Jesus teaches in his parables, the different things that Jesus does in his healings, in his actions, in his ministry, dealing with the Samaritan people is an amazing thing. When we hear the term the Good Samaritan, we shouldn't just think of, oh, well, you know, that's just something that we're familiar with. We should realize how hated as a people group those Samaritans were and the teachings that Jesus had about them and the things that Jesus did in healing them and going to this city of Samaria were just so just against the rules. They were a hated, hated, hated people group. They were looked at by the Jews as half Gentile. They were looked at by the Gentiles as half Jews. And so they, you know, they were in a situation where it was bad on either side of the road. Um, Okay, so, I mean, this would be like, you know, Jesus goes to Washington, D.C. or something. You know, it's a place that people just, it, it had a bad rap. Not that Washington, D.C. doesn't deserve the rap that it has. Um, but this was a place throughout all of Israel that was looked down upon. And so, the unloved, the unwanted. Let's look at a little bit of a history lesson here, or some some facts about Samaria. Its name likely meant kept or preserved, in Hebrew named after its founder in 1 Kings 16. We'll see that word in a second. In it, in Samaria, was the capital city of the northern kingdom known as Israel. Okay, so remember when Israel and Judah, they separated? Okay, they divided. It was a divided kingdom. The capital in the north became this area of Samaria. According to the biblical tradition, the region known as Samaria was captured by the Israelites from the Canaanites and was assigned to the tribe of Joseph. After the death of King Solomon, the northern tribes, including those of Samaria, the area of Samaria, 
separated from the southern tribes and established the separate kingdom of Israel. Initially, its capital was Tirzah until the time of King Omri, who built the city Shomeron. Uh, let's ask our, one of our Hebrew scholars here. What's the Hebrew word for he guarded? Shamar, okay. If you look up at the very top, this is where they get the name meaning kept or preserved, guarded, because the name originally was not Samaria, but it was originally Shomeron, which goes back to that root for Shamar, guarded or kept. And so, and it as established it at, as its capital. The region was conquered by the Assyrians. This is where the stigma comes. This is where the hatred comes from, what's about to take place in 722 B.C. The region was conquered by the Assyrians in 722 B.C. and reportedly much of its population was taken into captivity and deported. Okay? This is the catalyst for the hatred of the Samaritans. This is the catalyst for the hatred of the area of Samaria. We don't want to visit there. We'll go out of our way to avoid it. And this is what started it. In AD 6, the region became part of the Roman province of Judea after the death of King Herod the Great. Over time, the region has been controlled by numerous different civilizations, including Israelites, Babylonians, the classical Persian Empire, ancient Greeks, Romans, Byzantines, Arabs, Crusaders, and Ottoman Turks. Now the Samaritans, the Samaritans themselves, and this is going to get into why that captivity changed everything. The Samaritans are an ethno-religious group. Okay? It's not just a place, but it's a people that have a specific religion tied to that place. So the Samaritans weren't just okay, that guy's a North Carolinian or a, you know, Californian or a Tennessean. It's that guy is a Southern Baptist from South Carolina. You know, it, 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 there was a religion tied in with the place. I don't know if that's a very good analogy. Oh, there you go. Okay. So it was like, you know, what is that, um, you know, provost or something, Utah? Um, so the Samaritans were a, a group that were tied together with a religion, kind of in, this, in a similar way to the people of the land of Israel were tied in with the God of Israel and the law of Moses, okay, known commonly today as, as Judaism. Um, but that's kind of, you know, modern Judaism, rabbinical Judaism is different from what Moses taught. Um, but the people were tied in together with that land, that area, and that religion. Uh, it was named after uh, and descended from ancient Semitic inhabitants of Samaria since the Assyrian exile of the Israelites. Religiously, the Samaritans are inheritance, in, adherents of Samaritanism, an Abrahamic religion closely related to Judaism. Now, Samaritanism is not Judaism. They are different. They have similar kind of teachings, similar kind of thoughts, but they're different, okay? They're not the same. Um, based on the Samaritan Torah, Samaritans claim their worship is the true religion of the ancient Israelites prior to Babylonian exile. The Samaritans have their own Torah. They have their own 
law of Moses. They have their own Bible version, so to speak, okay? And their Bible version is not like differences between Bible versions today, unless you kind of compare it to the Book of Mormon, okay, with the Bible, or maybe a Roman Catholic Bible, because there's differences. There's books that are different. There's stuff added. There's whole differences between what they believe. Uh, I'll take this moment to kind of skip up to our friend on the upper right there. Okay, that gentleman, this picture was taken in about 1960, and this is a Samaritan high priest. Okay, the Samaritans are still around today. They're somewhat of a small group, and they live in that area, and they adhere to the Samaritan religion. So this, this man on the right, he's a Samaritan high priest. You can see the, the Samaritan Torah scrolls in the background. And the area next to him, the picture next to him, this was just taken a couple of years ago, and this is a bunch of Samaritans in the area of Nobilis Shechem, and they are um, celebrating a, a feast of their religion or an event of their, their religion, but this is, this is Samaritans, okay? They're still there. Uh, okay. They claim their worship is the true religion of the ancient Israelites prior to Babylonian exile. Preserved by those who remained in the land of Israel, as opposed to Judaism, which they assert is a related but altered and amended religion brought back by those returning from exile. It's commonly, though inaccurately accepted, that Samaritans are mainstream Jews. Okay, so you know how, like for instance, the Mormons believe that the Bible got corrupted and God gave Joseph Smith a revelation that kind of corrected and reinterpreted all of the errors that became corrupt uh, throughout the Bible that we have. It's kind of a similar thought between the Samaritans and the Jews. Okay, the Samaritans say, we're right. The Samaritans say, we have the true Torah. Yours was corrupted by being in Babylon. You don't have the true religion. We do. Okay? And so that was part of the hatred. Um, okay. Let's see here. We're going to get to the part. Uh, well, I'll just mention it now because I don't see it here. It was commonly taught, commonly understood, that when the Assyrians in 722 B.C. came and took the area, they took it captive, they slayed people, they took people into, in, in, into slavery, and there was also intermingling from what comes from an army coming and ravaging an area, spoiling an area, okay? And so the Jewish people, when they looked at a Samaritan, they said, you're not true Jews anymore. Although you may have been of the you know, seed of Abraham at one point, you've been intermingled with the Assyrians, with the Gentiles from Assyria, when they came and took you captive, either by force or willingly, you became partners with them, okay, in a relationship, a physical relationship, and now you're, you're half-breeds. You're no good. We'd rather talk to a full-blooded Gentile than talk to you because you're, you're a half-breed. You're in the middle. We don't like you, okay? Um, I'm not sure, and I think I've mentioned this before, um, I'm not sure if maybe, oh, I know, maybe part of why John chapter 4 is special to me 
because my dad is Jewish, my mom is Gentile. Okay, and so I'm kind of looked down upon by the Jewish people because you're not Jewish, your mom's not Jewish, you're not Jewish. And so it was a similar thing to the way that people viewed the Samaritans. Okay, I'm not technically a Samaritan, but in a general sense of the word, some people could probably call me a Samaritan because I have, I, I, you know, dad's Jewish, mom is Gentile. And Jesus not only died for the Jews, he not only died for the Gentiles, but he died for everybody in between. Even when they were hated, even when they were the lowest of the low. The low. Um, kind of how people sometimes are viewed or have been viewed from you know, interracial mixed marriages. They're hated by both groups because they're looked at as in between. That's kind of how the Samaritans were viewed. Um, okay. Their temple was built, I'm at that kind of second last paragraph there. Their temple was built at Mount Gerizim. They have and had, they had a temple, their own temple, not in Jerusalem, but in Mount Gerizim, there in Shechem, in the middle of the 5th century BC. Okay, so 500 years before Christ, they built their temple in Mount Gerizim and was destroyed by the Maccabean, Hasmonean, uh, John Hyrcanus in the late 110 BC. Although their descendants still worship among its ruins, which is what I believe these people here are doing in that picture next to the Samaritan priest. Um, they worship on that mountain. Even though their temple is gone, there's ruins there, but they still worship on that mountain. Um, the antagonism between Samaritans and Jews is important in understanding the New Testament stories of the Samaritan woman at the well and the parable of the Good Samaritan. A Good Samaritan? What is that? That's like an oxymoron. There can be no Good Samaritan. These people are the enemies of the true faith of, you know, Judaism. They were so looked down upon. And so when you see what Jesus has to say about the Samaritan, and oftentimes in his parables, in his ministry events, you'll see a Samaritan that has great faith. A Samaritan that says, okay, I'll believe you. Whereas, on the contrary, the Jewish people that were fully Jewish, they would reject what Jesus said. You know, what about that man that was, um, you know, in a ditch? He was left for dead. Who passed by? Yeah, there was, there was uh, wasn't it a high priest or a, a priest that passed by? A Levite that passed by? And it wasn't until this Samaritan, a person from Samaria, it's, it's, the word Samaritan is so ingrained in our culture, in our mind, we kind of take it away from the biblical understanding. We think of like, oh, Samaritan's purse, <laughs> you know? But, or a good Samaritan is being just, oh, he was, he was a good Samaritan. He helped that lady across the street. Um, anyway, the Samaritans have a whole, a whole history. Um, Jews would purposely avoid traveling through Samaria due to the ethno-religious stigma that the people had. Normally, a Jewish person would head over to Jericho and then head north upon the Jordan River just to avoid Samaria. Okay, so if you look over here on that map, you got that green arrow. If somebody was going from Jerusalem into Galilee, this is what they would do. They would head all the way over, all the way, what is that, east? 
they would head east to the Jordan River, all the way over to the Jordan River, and they would kind of walk along the banks of the Jordan River all the way up into Galilee. The red route, the more direct route, what's biblically known as the Way of the Patriarchs, was avoided in Jesus' day because of the Samaritans. And yet Jesus, instead of going that green route that was commonly used by Jewish people, okay, the King's Highway as it was known, they would take this, uh, instead of taking that direction, the, the green arrow, Jesus went completely against the tide of the day, and he said, I'm going to go through Samaria. I need to go through Samaria. And that's that red route that's there. If you look on a map, you can see kind of X marks the spot. Um, there's a, kind of like an X there. And right in the middle of the X is Shechem, Nobilis Shechem, which is where Jesus would have been here. Okay, so normally a Jewish person would head over to Jericho. I think I read that, okay, just to avoid Samaria. Jesus breaks all the rules when he says, when it says that he must needs go through Samaria. Uh, just kind of revisiting, just by way of, you know, verbally here. John 3.16, for God so loved the world. Okay, and Jesus is demonstrating that here. He just told Nicodemus less than half a chapter ago, and now he's demonstrating that. Not just that God loves the Jews, and we are to take the gospel to the Jew first. We still have a biblical imperative to do that. Whether you are a Gentile or a Jew or a Samaritan, all are commissioned to take the gospel to the Jews first. But here, Jesus is showing that it's not just the Jews that he died for. It's not even just the Gentiles, but it's the hated of both groups, the in-between, that he needs to go and visit and show this to. Um, Romans 10.13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whosoever, even if it's a Samaritan. Okay, so we'll see the intensity of God's love in verse number 6. Okay, that was the introduction. We're, we're moving along here. Verse number 6, now Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, sat thus on the well, and it was about the sixth hour. Now, we don't have a, any biblical or any Old Testament, I'll say it that way, we don't have any Old Testament uh, speaking of, of, of Jacob's well. We have the land that Jacob purchased. Boy, this thing is just falling off my ear. We have the land that Jacob purchased that was given in Joshua to the descendants of Joseph. But here we see that it's Jacob's well is there. And this is a well that was assumed or believed, according to tradition, that Jacob himself dug. This is Jacob's well. This is in Sychar, in Samaria, Nobilis Shechem. He comes to the city of Samaria, which is called Sychar, near to the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. Jesus, therefore, being wearied with his journey, do you think he had a long way to walk? Probably a very long very long, very wearisome trip. And when he gets there, when he arrives at Shechem, guess what time it is? The sixth hour. Now, when does, it, when, when does the reckoning of daytime start for a Jewish person? The reckoning of daytime starts at six, okay, sunrise. So what does that make the sixth hour? It's lunchtime, okay? 
It's right in the middle of the day. You know, when you're getting, you know, into your work, you're busy doing whatever you're doing, and your stomach starts grumbling, it's kind of your internal clock saying, hmm, oh, it's lunchtime. <laughs> it says Jesus was wearied with his journey. And this made me think. The sixth hour is about noon. Jesus was wearied with his journey. Do we go out of our way to tell one of the Messiah? We see passages where Jesus talked about leaving the 99 and going after the one. This is an example of that. He's leaving Judah. He must needs go through Samaria. And we know Jesus has in mind what's going to happen. And it's this one woman at the well. She's not just a Samaritan. She's a Samaritan woman. And that made things worse in that time period. You wouldn't, you wouldn't talk to a, a, a woman. I mean, they were looked at just so much lower than what Jesus... Jesus, people look at, at, at Christians, you know, and they say, well, you guys are, you know, sexist pigs and you demean women and, 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 and so on. Jesus in his teachings completely changed the face of the earth's perception of man and woman. Jesus and the scriptures elevate what was previously thought by the common people to, to, to be worthless. Um, and we see in scripture, when it talks about giving honor unto the wife as unto the weaker vessel, that's not necessarily something that, oh, it's a, it's, 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 it's a weaker cup. No, it's, that's the fine china. Scripturally, you know, the, the, the woman, if you look even in Genesis, and, and this is something I talk to my Hebrew class about sometimes, God created the world, okay, Barah, he created the world. Then he made man, Asah, of the dust of the ground. When it gets to Eve, it uses a different word. He created the world. He made man or formed man. When it gets to Eve, it says Bana, that he built Eve, like somebody would build from a blueprint. And so man was the crowning glory of God's creation. And yet the woman is kind of the more advanced model, if you know what I mean. It's, it's, it's like the upgraded, anyway. So. So, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, there you go. Um, but uh, I don't know why I got off on that trail. But uh, so anyway, she's not just a Samaritan, okay, the look down people group. She's a woman, the look down gender. And not only that, we find that she's a sinful woman, okay? She's a moral outcast on top of being a woman, on top of being a Samaritan. And Jesus leaves Judah, Judea to go and visit this woman. And so that kind of challenged me. How do we look at evangelism? How do we look at the people that God might want us to reach that, oh, I don't want to talk to that person. Seriously, Lord? You're putting on my mind and my heart to, to, to give a track to that person or talk to that person? And look at Jesus' example. Look at what he did. Look at where he went. Not when it was easy, but when it was a long journey and he was wearied, he was in human flesh. We read in the Bible that he was tempted in all points, like as we are. That means that he got tired. That means that he got weary. That means that he got hungry. And so he does all this just to get to a hated place, to a hated person, and speak to her. And so he gets to the well. He sat thus on the well. It was about the sixth hour. 
Think about what Jesus did for you and me on the cross. He didn't just go out of his way for this woman. He just didn't, you know, become wearied with his journey and to go to somebody that was unloved and unwanted in the Samaritan woman in John chapter 4, but he did that with us. Were we any less unwanted, unlovable, ungodly? And did he do any less for us than he did for this Samaritan woman? He carried his cross. He was beaten. He was bruised. He was killed. He laid down his life willingly, not just for Israel. And I am so thankful for this. I love the Jewish people. God has called me to the reach of the Jewish people. Some people, in looking through the scriptures, seeing that the Jewish people is through Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, would say, okay, you're, you're Jewish because your father's Jewish. But the Jewish people don't see it that way. They see it as you're lower than the low, you know. You're, you're lower than the person from Africa that would come in here and say, you know, I want to I learn more about, about Israel or I love the Jewish people. When I tell them that, I'm, that my dad's Jewish, they're like, oh. You, know, you can just sense this, this feeling. Anyway, if you could only be saved if you were one or the other, and I'm sure all you guys feel the same way. If you could only be saved if you were a Jewish person, you know, if that mystery never was revealed, that the, that the Gentiles also could by faith be saved in the Jewish Messiah? If it was never revealed or never part of God's plan that that would happen, we would be completely lost and without hope, completely, totally. And so Jesus is showing this woman in his, just in his journey there that he has a purpose in reaching her. And it's all about God's love. All these things show in some different way the love of God that was mentioned to us in John chapter 3. We see it in action in John chapter 4. So what Christ did on the cross. Also, I don't know if I've mentioned this to you guys before. When you think of the ultimate missionary, you know, the, the ultimate missionary, sometimes we'll think of like, you know, Adoniram Judson or William Carey, you know, we'll think of just different people. Uh, if we look, if we think of from biblically, you know, people go, oh, this is Paul. You know, Paul was the ultimate missionary. Look at what he did. Look at the places that he went. Look at the persecution that he endured. But we're forgetting the biggest of them all, okay? To be a missionary, people say that the, the, the definition of a missionary is something like, you know, going into a place to, 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 to reach uh, e either, either a location or a culture to, to, to give them the gospel. And lots of times a missionary is looked at as, well, you leave where you are to go somewhere else to where God wants you to go. And Paul left where he was from, you know, the area of Damascus. He left Israel. He went into Greece. He went into Asia Minor. He went to all these different places to give the gospel. Where did Jesus leave? He left heaven. He left the throne room of God to come where? He's not just going from one country to the other. He's not just going from, you know, even America to the Middle East or from England to Africa. But he's going from heaven to here. For what purpose? To die. He's the ultimate example of a missionary, not Paul. Paul was great, you know. Um, I could only hope to ever be even a smidgen of the shadow of Paul. <laughs> but look at what Jesus did. 
Look at what he endured, not only for the Samaritan woman, but for us. Okay, so we're continuing. Verse number seven. There cometh a woman of Samaria to draw water. Jesus saith unto her, give me to drink. Now, Jesus has in mind what's going to transpire the whole time. Okay, when we see Jesus talking to this woman, we will find out that he has a specific reason for everything he says, everything he does. But not only when he goes into Samaria, not only when he goes into Shechem, Sychar, and sits down at this well, is he just flying in the face of all of what's culturally accepted. But then he goes one step further. A woman shows up, and he says, give me to drink. He speaks to her. Jewish people and throughout the centuries, um, you know, the, 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 the Orthodox synagogues, they would not even have women worshiping in the same room. Nowadays, sometimes you'll have a partition between the men and the women in the Orthodox synagogues. Um, my rabbi friend from Cleveland, he's an Orthodox rabbi, but he was blacklisted from so many of the other um, synagogues because he had what's called an egalitarian congregation, meaning men and women can actually be together in the service. And so the women, according to Judaism, I mean, you just, because of the possible uncleanness, they were just like, I'm not going to, uh, the Jewish men were like, I'm not going to even converse with this woman. I'm not even going to talk to them. I'm not even going to, any of that. And Jesus himself goes to this place that's unwanted, unloved, place that's even hated, and opens his mouth to speak to a woman, a Samaritan woman. When we read this, we say, big deal. You know, men talk to women all the time. Not in Jesus' day. Men go places all the People go places all the time. Well, in Jesus' day, the Jews, they did not go to Samaria. And so we need to realize the gravity of the situation here in what Jesus is doing and what Jesus is saying. He says to the woman, give me to drink. For his disciples were gone away into the city to buy meat. Okay, it's like they went into Raleigh to, you know, get Chipotle or something. No, they didn't do that. But they went to get some food. They went to get some lunch because, remember, it's lunchtime. Okay, they went to the city. So Jesus is talking to the woman. Then saith the woman of Samaria unto him, How is it that thou, being a Jew, ask drink of me, which am a woman of Samaria? Do you get the reason why she says this? The very first thing out of her mouth. It's just kind of like this startled statement. How, how, are you how are you even talking to me, being a Jew? How are you talking? Why are you talking to a woman of Samaria? This is the very first thing that she says. And you can tell that she's kind of just surprised that he even talks to her. For the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. Well, now you understand why, if you didn't know before. Okay? Jesus answered and said unto her, If thou knewest the gift of God, that's kind of an interesting statement. What did he just get done talking to Nicodemus about in John chapter 3? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. If you, if you knew what the gift of God is, if you knew what God is in the process of offering to mankind, and who it is that saith to you, give me to drink, thou wouldest ask of him, and he would have given thee living water. When you read this passage, when you see this passage, I want you to realize that Jesus had been waiting days, hours, even days, 
to make this statement to this woman. Okay? He, he, uh, this, is, this is the point. To talk to the woman, this individual, this person, and to say, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that's asking you for a drink, you would have asked of me, and I would have given you living water. So, how often do we neglect to ask Jesus to help? How often do we neglect to ask the Lord's help? It, it just kind of, you know, came upon me. Looking at this passage where Jesus is talking to this woman. And he says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is, that, if, if you knew what was available to you, you would have asked of me and I would have given you living water. In what situations, in what context do you think we could hear the same thing from Jesus regarding something else? We go through some trial. We go through some difficulty. We muster through the power of our flesh to try and accomplish some task, and it just blows up in our faces. I can almost imagine him saying, if you would have realized what I'm offering to help you, the power of the Spirit, my word, if you would have availed yourself of what I'm giving you, you would have just gone through this with flying colors. You would have been blessed. You wouldn't have had any of these issues. All because we neglect to ask. Okay. We must open our mouths. This was something that uh, just was not done. And Jesus, he not only goes there, but he, he speaks to her. When we go to talk to somebody about Christ, when the Lord has burdened our hearts for somebody, we need to not hide it under a bushel. We need to not keep it held in. I mean, we can think nice thoughts and pray nice prayers, but God's commandment to us is to what? Preach the gospel to every creature. We have to open our mouth at some point. Okay. So Jesus says... If you would have known the gift of God and who it is that says to you, give me to drink, you would have asked of him. You would have asked of me, and he would have given you living water. What is living water? Living water is nothing new. Mayim, mayim is water. Chaim is life. How many of you guys ever heard of Lachaim? If you ever seen Fiddler on the Roof, you, you know Lachaim. Okay? Lachaim means to life. It's a toast that they would make. Chaim is life. Maim is water. So we have Maim and Chaim. Water and life. Okay? Maim Chaim is living water. Now, is this water that's, that's actually like alive? Is it some kind of weird thing, some kind of weird concept? Well, it has its, its, its origin. It has its roots in the Old Testament, in the Hebrew Scriptures, Mayim Chaim is used, and it's used to speak of a fountain or a spring. And I'm pretty sure that even in modern Hebrew, if you go to Israel, you talk to somebody about a spring, okay? Water that seems to have a life of its own because it's bubbling up from the ground, okay? A spring or a fountain, that's living water. That's Mayim Chaim in the Hebrew. Isaiah chapter 12. This is the entire chapter of Isaiah chapter 12 here, this paragraph. It's only six verses. 
And in that day thou shalt say, O Lord, I will praise thee. Thou wast angry with me, thine anger is turned away, and thou comfortest me. Behold, God is my salvation. The word salvation there is Yeshua, Jesus. I will trust and not be afraid. For the Lord, Jehovah, is my strength and my song. He also has become my salvation, my Yeshua. Jehovah has become Yeshua. That's kind of an interesting concept there, just in that verse. Therefore, with joy, and this is where this, this, this comes from. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Back in Isaiah, dealing with a prophecy about salvation, it's explained to God's people through Isaiah that they would with joy draw water out of the wells of salvation. And so what Jesus is explaining to this woman is not, you're not going to be thirsty anymore, but it's that you're going to have salvation. Your spiritual thirst is going to be entirely and completely and totally quenched. And in that day shall you say, praise the Lord, call upon His name, declare His doings among the people, make mention that His name is exalted, Sing unto the Lord, for he hath done excellent things. This is known in all the earth. Now listen to this. This is kind of neat. Cry out and shout, thou inhabitant of Zion, for great is the Holy One of Israel in the midst of thee. When you think about Jesus and his incarnation, Jesus is the Holy One of Israel. The Messiah is the Holy One of Israel. Great is the Holy One of Israel right in the middle of where you are, in your midst. He's here. Uh, I was going to include just the one verse about the waters of the wells of salvation, but then I, I looked at the whole chapter. I thought I got to include the whole thing. It's all about Jesus, and right in the center of it is drawing water out of the wells of salvation. And then in Jeremiah chapter 2, now this is an amazing, amazing thought, amazing passage. Jeremiah chapter 2, verse 11, Hath a nation changed their gods, which are yet no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which doth not profit. Be astonished, O ye heavens, at this, and be horribly afraid. Be very desolate, saith the Lord. What he's about to say, he wants us to be surprised about. He wants us to be shocked about. He says, for my people, Israel, the Jewish people, have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed them out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. When I used to teach about this passage back in college, do we have any people that like video games in here? I was a video game-aholic as a kid. Okay. Um, when I used to teach this passage in college, I gave an illustration of when the PlayStation 3 came out. Now, this is old news. This is like years and years and years ago. But when the PlayStation 3 came out, there was a crowd of people and, and, and lines of people waiting to get into the store, okay? Lying out the door, on the sidewalk, around the building, lines of people waiting. They had their money, they had their reservation to purchase a PlayStation 3 video game system. And this guy comes up to different people in the crowd, and one in particular, and he has a gun, and he says, give me your money. He's robbing the guy at gunpoint. He has his money to buy his PlayStation 3. He's in line. He's reserved it. He's waited for it for months and months and months and months. He is at gunpoint, 
The guy says, give me your money. And the guy standing there with the money says, no. I believe he died that night. He was shot, and I believe he was killed. What, what better example of a broken cistern that can hold no water? <laughs> okay? What we try and fill a void with that's in our heart because we don't know God, uh, before we come to know Him as Savior, we have this void in our heart that only He can fill, and we're trying to fill it with broken cisterns, okay? Uh, a, a trick cup with a leak at the bottom that can hold no water. Not only that, that's one of the evils, is we're trying to, you know, hold water in a broken cistern. The first evil is that in order to do that, they've forsaken him, the fountain of living waters. Okay, so physically, literally, Mayim Chaim is a spring. Okay, we'll see it uh, in nature. We'll see, you know, Old Faithful. Okay, that's more of a geyser. But that's an example of living water, bubbling up, springing up, okay? And, uh, but here, God himself says that I am the fountain of living water. When we look at this passage in John chapter 4, and I just, oh, I've been doing some research for the biblical, the, the school of um, Jewish and biblical studies that we're working on for Jewish Awareness Ministries, our online Bible school that we're trying to put together. Uh, I've been working on a class about the deity of Jesus, that the, that the Messiah would be and has to be God. And I'm reading some articles, and I've reading some, been reading some articles online from Jewish people that say Jesus never claimed to be God. And it's crazy to think that. It's absolutely crazy. Over and over and over again, especially even in just the book of John, we see Jesus claiming to be God over and over and over and over. And here in this instance, thinking back to Jeremiah chapter 2, who is the fountain of living waters? God himself, the creator, Jehovah. He is the fountain of living waters. And Jesus says, if you would know who's talking to you, I would have given you living water. What clearer of an example do you need if you're familiar with Jeremiah that Jesus is claiming to be God? Uh, anyway, okay. So let's look at the extent of God's love. Did we look through? Okay, let's look through verse 14. The woman said unto him, Sir, okay, now this is, this is the first instance where she says the word sir. Okay, in Hebrew it would have been, did we learn about this last time? Adoni. Adoni, kind of like Adonai. Adonai is plural. Adonai is the Lord. Okay, but in modern Hebrew, you would say Adoni, my Lord, my master, sir. Okay, and that's what she's calling him. So she's calling him sir. And, and this is the first time that she does this. After he says, if you would know who's talking to you, you'd ask of him, he'd give you living water. Sir? See, she changes her tone. The very first thing she says is, you know, he, he, sa he says, give me to drink. And the very first thing that she says, the very first thing she opens her mouth is says, how are you talking to me that you're, you're a Jew and I'm a Samaritan woman? The Jews have no de dealings with the Samaritans. And it's just kind of this just abrupt, rude kind of, you know, just, she's just flabbergasted. How are you even talking to me? And then when he makes this statement, she changes her tune. And she says, sir, you can see the wheel start to turn. 
Okay? Her faith is starting to be exercised in who Jesus is. Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. From whence then hast thou that living water? Are thou greater than our father Jacob, which gave us the well? Now notice that she says, our father, Jacob. Now she says, the Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. You see, they're two separate groups. The Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. But then she says, our father Jacob gave us this well. Okay, so she's claiming to be a descendant from Jacob, even though the Pharisees especially would just be appalled at that statement. You're not a Jew, <laughs> you know? How dare you claim to have Jacob be your father? Anyway, which gave us this well and drank thereof himself and his children and his cattle. And Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. Do you get the analogy there? In the Hebrew, mayim chayim means a spring, okay? Water that has life of its own. It's running, it's moving, it's bubbling up. Jesus says, if you knew who's talking to you, he would give you living water. And then he says, the water that I give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So it's not just fulfillment in the here and now, but it's everlasting life. It's unending blessing and fullness of being in God's presence and having a relationship with Him and having forgiveness. So this water is not something physical like she was thinking it was. How, how can you get down there in that well, you know, and, and, and give me some of this living water? And then he explains to her what it is, which directly parallels Isaiah chapter 12. Therefore, with joy shall ye draw water out of the wells of salvation. Everything that he is telling her is ingrained in the Hebrew Scriptures and the teachings of the prophets. Okay, so, do we have any questions or comments so far? Questions, comments, discussion? Okay. Controversy? <laughs> okay. All right, so, verse number 15 through 19, we see the extent of God's love. The woman saith unto him, what's that word? Sir. Sir. I'm not just saying this for, you know, to be arbitrary. It's going to come into play here in a second. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. I don't want to have to come to this stupid well anymore. Give me some of this water that's, you know, fountain of youth to make me not have to ever be thirsty ever again. Jesus saith unto her, Go, call thy husband, and come hither. You see, now, I believe that Jesus wasn't only waiting to give her this first statement, if you knew who talked to you, he'd give you living water. But I believe he was also waiting to make this second statement. Go call your husband, and then come here. The woman answered and said, okay, wait a second. The past two responses, the past two times that she's talked to him, verse number 11 and verse number 15, Sir, thou hast nothing to draw with. Verse number 15, Sir, give me this water. You know, she's, she's kind of 
changed her tune. She's interested. She's polite. She's respectful. Jesus says, go call your husband and come hither. What does she do? She forgets the whole sir thing, and she just blurts out what the first thing to come to her mind to save her own skin. You can tell by this instance that she's surprised at what is what happened. Go call your husband and come hither. The woman stops calling Jesus sir as he catches her off guard with his request. She wasn't probably expecting him to say, go call your husband. She attempts to hide her sin by stating in a deceitful manner that she has no husband. And you'll understand why in a second, that we can, we can surmise from this and what Jesus says that she's trying to be deceitful when she says, I don't have any husband. Verse number, uh, verse number 17. Uh, the woman answered and said, I have no husband. And Jesus said unto her, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands. And he whom thou hast now hast is not thy husband. In that saidst thou truly. Jesus' last statement, that last phrase there, verse number 18, where he says, in that saidst thou truly, you can tell that he's catching her in a lie or in an, in an attempt to be deceitful. She was trying to say, I don't have a husband, for him to be like, oh, okay, never mind, forget that. But Jesus is God. He knows everything. He knows this woman's history. He knows her life. He says, you've, you've said correctly, I, you have no husband. You've had five. And the one that you're now with is not your husband. In that, you said truthfully. <laughs> and so you can, and then her response, the woman saith unto him, and again, sir, you see, she, she skips a beat there for a second when he catches her off guard. I, I have no husband. But then after he tells her what he does, the woman says, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. And so, Jesus brings out the truth that she has had five husbands. Now, it can be safely assumed that these five husbands that she had previously, she either lost them through death, okay, they either died, bringing up a sad, tragic part of her life, or they divorced her. Okay, back in those days, a woman could not divorce a man. The man had to, you know, bring the bill of divorcement. It was his prerogative. It was his right. And so if these five previous men were um, not dead, it means that they had divorced her, quite possibly for immorality, quite possibly for unfaithfulness. But we can say for sure that these five husbands that she previously had were either dead, they either died, or they divorced her. Either that or she's, you know, playing the harlot, running around, and doing whatever she wants to do. Either way, uh, it's not good. Because she now has, at this point, an adulterous relationship with a man to whom she is not married. Jesus makes a statement that gives us a hint of her motive in stating that she had no husband. When he says, in that, you said truthfully. He catches her in the middle of trying to defend herself when she is involved in something and has been involved in something that's not right. Now later in this chapter, we'll see the woman telling others that Jesus told, told her all things whatsoever she did. 
He told me, he told me everything I've done. And it wasn't, he said everything that happened to me. He said, she, she said, he, he, he told me all the things that I ever did. And this leads us to believe that not only with the statement of, he, who, he whom thou hast is not your husband, but when she says, he told me all things that I ever did, leads us to believe that these things were not good, that these things were things that she would try to hide, things that you wouldn't want people to know. This is what Jesus confronts her with. The extent of God's love is not only to the unwanted, it's not only to the unloved, but it's to the ungodly. In Romans it says that in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. It also says that, we'll, we'll, that God commended his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We should all see ourselves in this Samaritan woman. When we look at this passage, we shouldn't just see, okay, she's not directly looked at as a Jew. She's not directly looked at as a Gentile. When we look at this passage, we should see ourselves. We should see what Christ did for us because we were no more lovable than her. We were no less ungodly than her. And Jesus died for you and me and her alike. Okay. Then we see the person of God's love in verses 20 through 26. How are we doing for time? Okay. Okay, we'll see. We'll see here. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. Okay, pop quiz, don't look at your sheet. What mountain is she talking about? Gerizim. Okay. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. They're still worshipping there today. The ruins of their temple on Mount Gerizim. Our fathers worshipped in this mountain. And ye say that in Jerusalem is the place where men ought to worship. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, Believe me, the hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain, Gerizim, nor yet at Jerusalem, at the temple, worship the Father. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. Now, that means two things, or can mean two things. Well, it does mean two things. Jesus says that salvation, okay, the, the, the way of salvation, the way of having a, a, a redemption and a correct relationship with God and forgiveness and eternal life is through the Jewish people. It comes through the Jewish people. Salvation is of the Jews. Jesus being a seed of Abraham. Jesus being the promised seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The one that would bless the entire world. Salvation is through them. That's point number one. Point number two, guess what Jesus is saying here? By the way, Samaritan woman, by the way, the Jews have the right Torah. You don't. Okay? So he not only says that the hour is coming and now is, where neither at this mountain, Gerizim, nor yet in Jerusalem shall men worship the Father. We know what we worship. You worship, you know not what. At this moment in time, Jesus verifies that the scripture and the teachings found within from the Jewish Torah and the Jewish scriptures are correct and valid 
and the Samaritan Torah and the Samaritan teachings are not correct. Okay? The Samaritans, they say, you guys, when you got taken away to Babylon, we were still here and we have the correct Torah and you guys don't. You guys are corrupted. We are authentic. At this moment in time, Jesus says, nope, you're wrong. The Jews have the correct one. Okay? Which is very interesting. Uh, knowing the history and knowing what Jesus is saying in that statement. But the hour cometh and now is when the true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. Now Jesus said in previous passages, I believe John chapter 7, if not John chapter 8, Jesus says, I do exactly what the Father tells me to do. I do and say and speak exactly what he tells me to do and say and speak. Not to mention Jesus is God the Son. But this thought that God so loved the world, God so loved the world, that he gave his Son, his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Also the fact that Jesus says, I, I only do and say and speak exactly what the Father tells me to do. He says here, the Father seeketh such to worship him. That is the very reason that he is in Samaria. That is the very reason that Jesus went against all the cultural stereotypes. He went against all the cultural accepted practices and norms in going to Samaria and talking to this woman. Why? Because he's seeking somebody to worship him. That's the whole point of John chapter 4. The Father seeking such as to worship him. Even those that are unlovable, even those that are unwanted, and even those that are ungodly. He sought you at some point in time, and he's still seeking you, right? He still wants us to draw closer to him each and every day. Okay. So, the Father seeketh such to worship him. God is a spirit. They that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. We must worship him inwardly, from our heart, not just in some outward set of liturgical motions, okay? Getting caught up in some moment of what people are doing. God doesn't want that. God wants inward, truthful worship from our heart that may very well manifest itself in singing. David danced before the Lord. That was a manifestation of his praising the Lord, worshiping the Lord. But it all begins in spirit. It all begins inwardly. It all begins from the heart. Um, boy, Jesus told the Pharisees, you draw nigh unto God with your mouth, but your hearts are far from him. Okay, that's kind of the opposite side of what this verse is teaching. Worship him in spirit. Not only in spirit, not only inwardly from your heart, in sincerity, but worship him in truth. If you're not worshiping him in a doctrinally correct manner, if you're not worshiping him for who he is in truth, you're not doing it right. If, if, if we're worshiping, you know, God saying that God and Allah are one and the same, like some people do, we're not worshiping God in truth. We're not worshiping God at all. Um, so both of these sides of the coin matter. Spirit, inwardly, in sincerity from your heart, not just an outward set of emotions, but in truth as well. It's kind of like that passage talks about speaking the truth in love. Both parts of that equation are important. You can speak 
doctrinal error or in love, and it's no good. You can speak the truth in hatred, and it's lost its, it's, it's, it's hypocritical. You know what I'm saying? And so we need to worship in spirit and in truth, and that is what God is seeking. The woman saith unto him, we got two more verses here in this section. The woman saith unto him, I know that Messiah is cometh. Okay? And this is neat because even with the Samaritans' religion, even with the Samaritans' Torah, they still had a teaching about the Messiah. They still had a waiting and an anticipating of the coming of the Messiah. She says, I know Messiah is coming. I know Messiah is coming, which is called Christ. When he has come, he will tell us all things. The Messiah is going to fix everything, Jesus. Boy, how... Can you imagine, I mean, being a fly on the wall or something, or a, a fly on a tree, watching this conversation where Jesus is sitting there, the Son of God, born of a virgin, born in Bethlehem, lived a perfect life. He's sitting there, and the woman tells him, I know Messiah is coming. When he comes, he's going he's gonna to fix everything. He's going to teach us everything. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's kind of like an ironic moment for her to be saying this to him. One of my favorite passages, one of my favorite statements in all of the Scripture, and that's a, that's a tall order, is this next passage. Jesus says unto her, I that speak unto thee am he. I'm, I'm him. I am the Messiah. What clearer of a statement do you want? And so, this is the person of God's love. It all focuses in. I mean, it's kind of like, you know, it's, 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 it's narrowing in on Jesus in his statement that I that speak to you am he. I mean, he already said if you knew who was talking to you, you'd ask and he'd give you living water. And she talks about, well, I know when Messiah is coming, he's going to tell us all things. And Jesus says, I that speak unto thee. And he. Okay, so when we have God's love in action, it's never without opposition, right? And the opposition in this next verse may be kind of small, maybe something that we skim over, but there is opposition. Whenever we're trying to show God's love to somebody and telling them the gospel, there is opposition. Verse number 27. And upon this, okay, can you think of a, 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 a worse moment for them to come in and interrupt what Jesus is saying, what Jesus is doing? He just gets to the statement, I that speak unto thee am he. And here bust in the disciples. And marveled that he talked with the woman. Can you, can, can you just see them kind of in the background? You know, they're kind of talking to each other amongst themselves. And they're just, you know, they're like pointing at him. And why is the master talking? Why is he wasting this, his time with this ungodly, unwanted, half-breed woman? You could just imagine they marveled that he talked with her. Yet no man said, what seekest thou, or why talkest thou with her? So, in this passage, there's not like opposition like necessarily like the Apostle Paul had, okay? And what they're thinking and what they're kind of believing and how they're acting is not being manifested in them talking to Jesus and saying, why are you talking to her? It stops short of that. It stops short of them interrupting him and saying, why are you talking to this woman? I can't believe you're talking to this woman. But that's what they're thinking. And that's how they're acting. The Bible says that they marveled. They couldn't believe it when they got there. But they're respectful enough not to say, you know, why in the world are you talking to this woman? 
The woman then left her water pot. Okay, we see the, the object of God's love here in these next couple of verses, down through verse number 43. Oh, I love this chapter. The whole chapter is just amazing, and it's not over yet. Okay, so verse 28. The woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and saith to... What's the next couple words there? The men. Okay, this woman who was a social outcast. I mean, the place was not loved. The place was hated. The place was unwanted. The place was, had a stigma. But she herself, within this community, do you think she was a popular person? Okay, not for the right reasons. Okay, she was an outcast. She was immoral. And she goes, because of what she had seen, because of what she had heard, and she goes and talks to the men of the city. Now, sometimes, do you know what Satan wants to do with us? Do you know what sometimes what Satan tries to do, especially in trying to witness to our family, especially in trying to witness to our friends that we grew up with? You can't go back to that person. You can't try and tell them about Jesus. They know what you did. You know, I got saved at 15, so I don't have a squeaky clean story either before my salvation. People knew who I was. People knew what I did. And uh, Satan wants us to just drop it. Don't even bother. I mean, you're, 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 you're a completely wicked person. Or you were anyway up to this point. How are they going to believe you? And here with this woman, he could have thrown in her face, you know, they're not going to believe you. You're, you're, you're just a woman. And what does she do? She, she stops, she drops her water pot, she leaves it there, and went her way into the city to talk to the men. Come see a man. Come see. Come see a man which told me all things that ever I did. Is not this the Christ? Is not this the Messiah? This woman is amazing. We will meet her in heaven. It's going to be an exciting time. But look what she does. Then they went out of the city and came unto him. One second. Okay. And so, they went their way out of the city and came unto him. In the meanwhile, his disciples prayed to him, saying, Master, eat. You know, we've, we brought some McDonald's. You know, it's going to get cold if you don't eat. You know, they're getting upset trying to get him to eat. I'm not sure what time it was, but some time had definitely elapsed. And he said unto them, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Now, this is, this is kind of funny. Because their response in verse number 33 Therefore said the disciples one to another, Hath any man brought him out to eat? You know, did somebody else bring him some Wendy's while we weren't, <laughs> weren't watching? You know, did, did he go to Chick-fil-A where we had to eat McDonald's? Man. But Jesus is not talking about food. He's talking about something that he has to do. And he says, I have meat to eat that you know not of. Verse 34, Jesus saith unto them, My meat is to do the will of him that sent me and to finish his work. Oh, looking through this passage, I mean, we can get so challenged over and over and over by what Jesus says, by how the Samaritan woman responds, by what Jesus says again. You know, it's like we're, we're, we're constantly challenged in this passage to take it up a notch in our life, in our, in, in our evangelism, in our witnessing, in our spiritual life, in our closeness to the Lord, in our worship, just over and over and over. 
Say not ye, verse 35. Now this, this is a passage, this is, and, and I, I love to talk about this passage to people because it's one that is very well known. Verse 35. Say not ye therefore are yet, uh, say not ye there are yet four months, and then cometh the harvest. Behold, I say unto you, lift up your, lift up your eyes, look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. When we think of this passage, or we see on some missions bulletin, or some kind of church poster, the fields are white, already to harvest, and you see like, you know, this picture of a field of cotton or something, you know, or a field of wheat that's ready to just be harvested. That's not what he's talking about. When you see the context here, and when I saw the context here for the first time, it broke my heart. Look at verse number 30. Then they went out of the city and came unto him. It's the men of Samaria. It's the entire city that she has brought to Jesus. When he says, don't say that there's four months and then the harvest comes four months from now. He says, behold. He's telling them to look at something. What is he telling them to look at? I believe he's telling them, look at, look at, look at these people. This is the harvest. All of the men of Sychar, this ungodly, wicked woman who believed what Jesus had said, she instantly put works to her faith. She put feet to her, her faith. And she goes and she brings the city to Christ. He says, behold, look at the fields. They're white already to harvest. They're ready. Look on the fields, for they are white already to harvest. And he that reapeth receiveth wages, and gathereth fruit unto life eternal, that both he that soweth and he that reapeth may rejoice together. And herein is the saying true, one soweth and another reapeth. I sent you to reap, whereon ye bestowed no labor. Other men labored, and ye are entered into their labors. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed on him for the saying of the woman, which testified he told me all that ever I did. So when the Samaritans were come unto him, they besought him that he would tarry with them, and he abode there two days. Do you see the love of Christ here? He not only goes to a place that's hated, a place that's unwanted, a place that's unloved, a place that is avoided at all costs by the Jewish people. He talks to a woman, not only a, a Samaritan woman, but one that is ungodly, one that has a shady past, one that had done things that nobody would be proud of to be associated with her, she brings the city. Many of the men of the city believe on Jesus as the Messiah. We're going to see people in heaven because this woman told them, this man told me everything that I ever did. Because of what she said, they believed that he was the Messiah. They trusted in him for eternal life. And then when they ask, when they say, will you stay here with us for a while, teach us some things? He stays there two whole days. We see in the scripture when Jesus interacts with people, people that are proud, people that don't need his help, they think they don't need his help, he's abrupt with them. He's harsh in his words with them because they are hardened like stone. Their hearts are hard. He ends up calling them hypocrites. He ends up saying that you're whited sepulchers and so on and so forth. But those that humbly seek him, those that ask, those that believe in faith, do you see how generous he is with them? That woman, 
that said, you know, master, uh, you know, the, the, the dogs eat that which falls from the, the table of, of, of the children, you know, of the family. And he said, I have not seen so great faith in all of Israel. We see a similar situation here where he tarries in Shechem, in Sychar, for two whole days. And it says, and many more believed because of his own word. Okay, so we have many that believed because of what the Samaritan woman said, and many more believed because of Jesus' own teaching there in Samaria those two days. And said unto the woman, Now we believe, not because of thy saying, for we had heard him, for we have heard him ourselves, and know that this is indeed the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior of the world. Oh, what an amazing time. Now after two days, he departed thence and went into Galilee. Okay, so he takes this detour. Sometimes God might bring you on a detour just so you can talk to that one person that you've never met before this moment, but he wants you to talk to him. That happens sometimes. Okay. And then in verses number 44 through 54, finishing up the chapter, we see an example of God's love. Verse number 44, For Jesus himself testified that a prophet hath no honor in his own country. Where is he going? He's going into Galilee. He's going into the region that he was brought up in, where people don't want to even hear you because they think that you're nothing. And then when he was coming to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things that he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. Remember that feast? It was the Passover, where Jesus was in Jerusalem and where likely Nicodemus saw him. Because Nicodemus says, no man can do the miracles that you do unless God is with him, right? And Jesus says, I've seen these things. And so, um, I think it's at the very end of John chapter 2. Uh, okay, John chapter 2, verse 23. Now he was in Jerusalem at the Passover on the feast day. Many believed in his name when they saw the miracles which he did. Okay. That's likely the miracles that Nicodemus was talking about. No man can do the things that you do except God be with him. Okay. It says here that while, they were, while he went into Galilee, the people received him, having seen all the things he did at Jerusalem at the feast, for they also went unto the feast. Verse 46, So Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine. That's okay, brother. At least you don't have one of those watches. I was in a church in... in in Cleveland. Do you guys ever hear those watches when an alarm goes off? We'll give you a second, Tom. Uh, I was in Cleveland, <laughs> and there was a, an older lady in the church, and she had this digital watch that she would set an alarm for noon, okay? And right in the middle, undoubtedly, right in the middle of the preacher's sermon, or near the end of it anyway, uh, this very loud digital voice, the time is now 12 o'clock. <laughs> it was like every Sunday. <laughs> anyway, so at least you're, you know, you're, 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 ring, you're, you're, oh, yeah, okay, no problem, brother, we got mercy, okay, so Jesus came again, we're going to finish this chapter real quick, verse 40, 46, so Jesus came again into Cana of Galilee, where he made the water wine, and there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum, when he heard that Jesus was come out of Judea into Galilee, which, by the way, Capernaum is in Galilee, the region of Galilee. 
he went unto him and besought him that he would come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said unto him, Except ye see signs and wonders, ye will not believe. The nobleman saith unto him, Sir, come down, ere my child die. And Jesus saith unto him, Go thy way, thy son liveth. And the man believed the word that Jesus had spoken unto him, and he went his way. And as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, Thy son liveth. Then inquired he of them the hour when he began to amend. When did the son start to get better? And they said unto him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said unto him, Thy son liveth. And he himself, and he, and himself believed and his whole house. More people were going to meet in heaven someday. This again is the second miracle that Jesus did when he was come out of Judea into Galilee. Okay. So, comments, questions, discussion, we'll be done. Yes, Tom. Okay. I talked to a young man on the Zoom the other day. Uh huh. I never met before. He's a new guy. He's on his hands in Canada. And we were sitting there in the locker room with Dr. Bachman. And he was inquisitive. And so I started discussing with him. And he kept it going. And so I had another guy that now has even talked to him. And he's a Hunter. We will pray for him. Well, we will definitely pray for Hunter right now, shortly. Well, praise the Lord. Hopefully you'll see him again. We'll pray for We'll pray, we'll pray for that. Absolutely. Uh, well, he, he mentioned another prayer request that he'd forgotten from earlier. You got another one? Yes, I have a half-brother who... What's his name? Frank. Frank. Frank Newton. He gets angry if I talk to him about reading mm. Okay. We will pray for Hunter and Frank. Both of them need salvation. Okay. Yes. They will look at those people as having um, mothers that converted. Like, for instance, Ruth, Rahab. Um, you know, those that were not Jewish uh, by birth but are in the lineage of, you know, the patriarchs and the lineage of, of, of David and the lineage of Jesus, they would be looked at as Jewish because they formally, they would look at them as having formally converted to believing in the God of Israel, following the law of Moses. I, it, it depends on what group you're in, but usually if you had, like for instance, they would look at me differently, I suppose, 
if my mother had converted to Judaism before I was born, and that I was, and they probably, because sometimes they get really, um, you know, high standard of what you need to, if your mom wasn't Jewish by blood, by birth, uh, then were you, were you raised Jewish? No, I wasn't raised Jewish. Well, then just forget it. <laughs> you know, so they set the bar super high if you don't have both parents Jewish. And some communities would say, well, I assume that they would say, if, if, if my mother was a practicing Jew, although she may not have been born Jewish, they would say, okay, you're okay, you know. But since my mother was a, a Gentile Christian, no way. You know, you're not, you're not Jewish, as the woman in Jerusalem told me. You know, is your dad Jewish? Is your mother Jewish? No, you're not Jewish. That was her response. So we see some of the similar points of view, uh, at least similar feeling, similar sentiment that the Samaritans had in Jesus' day. What's that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and my kids, and probably my grandkids. So there's different ways that different groups within Judaism look at it. The Reform would say, okay, if you have either parent that's Jewish, you're, you're okay, we'll look at you as Jewish. I don't know. I'm not, I've never ran into that before. I don't know. Okay. Any other comments, questions, or forever hold your peace until next week? Okay. All right. Well, we'll close in prayer, and we'll pray for Hunter. We'll pray for Frank, and we'll pray for Mark again because another prayer for him won't hurt. Okay. Thank you, Lord. Shalom. This is Mark Robinson, Executive Director of Jewish Awareness Ministries, thanking you for listening to our Bible study. These Jewish Awareness podcasts are a teaching ministry of Jewish Awareness Ministries. If you have questions about the study that you just listened to, or would like additional information, go to our website, jewishawareness.org, email us at office at jewishawareness.org, or call us at 919-275-4433. Shalom.